Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. I see there's people still coming in. We got an empty front row. Why is church always the front row, the last one to fill up? If you want to come on in, you get some seats up here. We're glad that you're here today. I'm glad to be back preaching today. I've been here the last couple of weeks. We've had some great guest speakers. We had one guy who had the same name as me. He's actually on our staff, Pastor Scott with a British accent. And uh, I'll talk about him in a little bit, get him back for talking about me. Uh, I did go back and listen to the sermons, even when I wasn't physically present. Uh, last week, I had Pastor Rob, had a guy named Pastor Dan, different guys have preached, Pastor Gary. We had somewhere between seven to ten people trust Christ. Uh, so that's amazing, right? We'll give the Lord a hand. Oh. For sure. The Lord is alive and working. The Bible says in Luke chapter 15 that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents, turns to faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's always appropriate for us to celebrate and excited about that. If you were one of those people, though, I just want to say to you, uh, the next step in your obedience is to be baptized. And if you're interested in being baptized, maybe you don't know enough about that yet and you have some questions, that's totally fine. We'd love to talk to you about that. We've got information on our website. But if you're ready to get, you know, moving towards that step, if you'd write on your connection card today that you want to be baptized, and maybe you weren't one of the 10 people who just trusted Jesus, Jesus, but you haven't been baptized as a believer, if you would mark that on your card and then just drop it in one of the black boxes on your way out today, then uh, we will contact you and give you information about when the next baptism is and talk to you about any questions you might have about it, teach you what it means, why people do it, where it's at in the Bible, that Jesus did it. We'll talk about all that stuff um, if you just fill out your, your connection card for that. And if you're a guest, you fill out your connection card. Or somebody will talk about that a little bit later. And we make a donation to a ministry called Women at Risk International. So it's an opportunity for you to have an impact even here today. So we're glad that you're here as a guest. Uh, we're glad that you're here if you're a regular, regular part of our church family. We've already interacted with one another. You bumped into people from the first service and you know, shook hands and drank coffee or whatever happens out in the, in the hallway there and been able to sing to our king. And now we're going to study the scriptures together. We've been doing this series called Encounters. I'm looking at these encounters that Jesus has with people throughout the Gospel of John. My hope for you, pastorally, is that you will have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. That we wouldn't just have a series and it's a catchy name, nice little video before the message, but that you would encounter Jesus. And here's what you see in the scripture. When somebody encounters Jesus Christ, they don't walk away the same. They're all changed. Now, here's what we want changed. Some people, radical transformation, trust in Jesus as your Savior. It's a 180-degree turn. But some of us, you've known Jesus, it's like a sundial sometimes, right? Like it's a little not, just a little turn, a little bit more. We're gonna hopefully, Lord willing, you'll be transformed by Jesus to be a little changed today as we open up the scriptures. We're gonna be in John chapter four. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and go there. If you got an app, go ahead and click there. John chapter four. We're gonna be at the end of that chapter. Let me pray for us as you turn there, and uh, we'll jump into John chapter four. Father, thank you that you give us your word. You give us instructions. You show us how to to live a life of godliness. You show us our sin. You show us our problems. It's like a mirror when we look at your word. God, I pray that none of us would be like the foolish person who looks in the mirror and forgets what they look like. I'm going to guess everybody here looked in the mirror before they came today. And God, I pray that as we look into your word, it'd be like looking into a mirror. You'd shine your light into our story, that your Holy Spirit would move up and down these aisles, that you'd tap people on the shoulders, you'd speak a word of encouragement, you'd speak a word of conviction, you'd have somebody who doesn't know you come to know you. God, do your work, do what you want to do. And I pray you'd use my lips, even as a sinful man, use my lips, God, use me in some way to proclaim your truth to people, that people would be pointed to your son, Jesus, and that they, they, they would be transformed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. John chapter 4, we're going to start reading verse 43 in just a moment. Before we get there, let me just share with you a little update on some of the things that we did while, while I wasn't here preaching. My wife and I, the first week that we were gone, uh, we were in Madagascar, Africa. And some of you might be new to our church, maybe you haven't heard of that, it's a little island in the Indian Ocean. We sent some missionaries there 10 years ago, Grant and Jody Waller, and we sent them there. They were going to plant churches and share the gospel with what was called an unreached people group. These are literally people who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two years ago, we sent another couple to go there full-time, Nathan and Tessa Baker, and in the meantime, we sent multiple teams to go there, just groups of four, five, ten people that have gone out to villages and met people who had never met Jesus, gone there just to encourage the missionaries and stood out there with the missionaries, and I'll tell you what, what has happened in just a moment, but I want you to hear from my lips words I heard from Grant Waller's lips as he was showing me the work that God's done in this place, and it's like the book of Acts. He said, Southbridge has done this. So I want to come back and tell you that the work that God's done there through, you, through your prayers, through your going, if you've ever given a dollar to our church, we always take a percentage of whatever is given here and we give it away outside the walls of this church. Some of that's to our missionaries and our strategic partners. You've been a part of what God's doing. Let me tell you what God's done. There was, uh, at one time, the Malagasy people, zero believers. 
There's now about 8,000 new believers there in Jesus Christ. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, I told you already, the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. What? 8,000? Why are y'all sitting down? Like you can always, can always celebrate that. Amen? Amen? And there's about 200 churches there now in the last 10 years. Now, it hasn't been easy. It didn't all happen at once. Our ministry's done some incredible work. My respect level for them, after riding out into the bush, okay, we flew for 30 hours. That was nothing compared to driving for just over four hours out into the bush. Have you ever seen like an F-150 commercial? And they'd be like, well, you know, four by four and looks so manly and sexy. Let me tell you, ain't nothing sexy after four hours of motion sickness. <laughs> there, are people, there were people, some of them go to our church, you don't have to ask me who, uh, that threw up both ways on the way out there, on the way back. And our missionaries do that all the time to get out to these people that never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we went out there, and my wife, she's a nurse, she was doing some medical stuff, and J.D., our, one of our elders, did some teaching on, on uh, marriage and some different things to follow up with a conference that they had had. And one of my roles when I got there, the first thing I was going to do was with the, what they called the first-generation pastors. So the first-generation pastors are pastors that our missionaries led to Jesus. And then the second generation are ones that those people led to Jesus. And there's a third, and there's a fourth, and that's how it's supposed to go, by the way. And so I was preaching to the first-generation pastors. I sent a list of sermons to our missionaries. to pick one of these sermons, I'll preach to whatever, whatever one you pick. They picked the one on suffering. <laughs> now, these folks live on a dollar a day, which is like the majority of the world, FYI. Sometimes it's hard to fathom that for us. A dollar a day. When things are good, they've been in a three-year famine and a three-year drought. So here I am. Let me just tell you a couple secrets about me. I love air conditioning. I get these letters from PSNC telling me that I use more air conditioning than the rest of y'all. They're trying to guilt me into using less air conditioning. Do you get those? you get those? I like taking showers. I take two showers a day on a regular day when I'm in the air conditioning. We got there, they had bucket showers. Like we went out, to, I was like, I use a bucket? Are you kidding me? Like, how's this work? And I'm supposed to preach to these guys. I felt so inadequate. Preach to these guys who were living in a famine and a drought and off a dollar a day about suffering. But it did. I went with the translator the night before, spent about an hour and a half just making sure we had the words right and going to, to preach a message that was 20 minutes. 20 minutes of me preaching with the translator went a little bit longer. We'll just imagine it was 20 minutes. <laughs> Miracles happen. And uh, we won't be 20 minutes today, I promise. No matter how many times you say amen. <laughs> right on cue, right on cue, my brother. Like that. But then when I was done preaching... Uh, Nathan, one of our missionaries, he was leading our time together. He says something in Malagasy to all these guys. And I look over and I'm like, I'm done talking. Why are you still talking? And then he looked at me and he said, I just told him the word has been preached. Now do you have any questions? I was like, wait a minute. I might get an email sometimes, but we don't do questions. What are you talking about questions? <laughs> and so they don't raise their hand for questions either. So this guy, Alfaraza, he gets up. He walks up. He positions himself right in front of me. And I'm like, are we going to fight? Like, what's about to happen here? You know Positions himself right in front of me, and he throws his book at my feet, and he starts saying stuff in Malagasy. I don't know what he's saying. It sounds like this. I mean, I was like, is he mad? Like, I don't know what's happening here. And what was going on is he was asking me a question. I found out it was just a test question to see if he could trust me to ask me his real questions. If you want to meet Alfaradza, I brought a picture of him. Here he is with Grant Waller, the guy who led him to Jesus. Alfaradza is a former witch doctor who when he trusted Christ as a Savior, he was literally walking away from an old way of life to walk in a new way of life before he was ever even baptized, which for us, that is a symbol of, I'm following Christ, I want the world to know I'm following Christ. As a witch doctor, he had to burn all of his magic books, to sell, get rid of all of his charms. That cost him a lot of money. Oh, and being a witch doctor was a generational job. So his grandfather was a witch doctor, his father was a witch doctor, he's turning his back on his family. So for him to trust Christ was literally, lose your life, you want to save your life. And he went to follow Jesus Christ as a Savior. And there's lots of stories I could tell you about Alfaraza, but the, the one that blew me away was about him sharing the gospel with his family. Because he lived in another village now as a witch doctor, and he had to go back to his home village, which was 45 miles away. Now, I'd, I didn't like going on those roads in a land cruiser. My man was walking and using an ox cart to go 45 miles to share the gospel. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Is the same Holy Spirit at work in Madagascar that's at work in Raleigh-Durham? Could you imagine, just dream with me for a minute, think just a little vision for just a second, Seven to 8,000 new believers in the triangle over the next 10 years? Could you imagine if a few families got serious about sharing the gospel and hundreds of churches were planted as a result of that? And so let me ask you this question. Why would El Farazza travel 45 miles by foot or ox cart 
to share the gospel with someone who may reject him, may persecute him. He's already lost. He lives on a dollar a day on a good day. And he's forsaken his economy. And now he's a pastor of his church. And let me show you a picture of his father and him because his father trusted Christ too. Another former witch doctor. They're there preaching the gospel in their village. You see them praying. That's how they meet under a tree for church. So church looks a little bit different, but they're proclaiming the gospel. So he goes to his dad and he tells his dad, the wrath of God's coming against us. But Jesus took that wrath on himself on the cross, but you've got to by faith trust Jesus Christ. And he did. And then they started sharing the gospel. There was another time I was teaching these pastors and I was asked to teach them how to study the Bible. Many of them are illiterate. Alpha Radza, he doesn't know how to read. I heard him preach. He quoted Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 by heart. So he knows more of the Bible than many people in this room know the Bible memorized. Because he's heard it and he knows how precious it is. He's hidden it in his heart. So I'm trying to teach them how to study the Bible. They don't even know how to read the Bible. I, I shared a verse of scripture that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. And one of the pastors said, why would we be ashamed? <laughs> they lose their job. They could lose their family. It means walking away from everything. Why would we be ashamed of that? Let me ask you a personal question. Why should we share the gospel of Jesus Christ? We're going to walk through it in a passage of Scripture, and, and, and you could guess out, you could yell out all kinds of answers. There are thousands of answers. Let me tell you what I'm not going to say. Some of you got in real uptight. Like Some of you are introverts. You're like, he's going to make me go door to door and wear a white shirt and ride a bike for two years. No, no. That's <laughs> not what we're doing today. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, there are lots of reasons I could tell you. I'm not going to tell you that hell is real. It is. I'm not going to tell you there's real people that go there. Happens every day. I'm not going to tell you you have the news that could stop that. That's true. Because that's not in our passage today. But there are thousands of reasons I could tell you. But we're going to look at the ones that are in our passage. John chapter 4, if you've got your Bible. We were in John chapter 4 in this series already, and most of you that are familiar with John chapter 4 know the story that was told earlier when our other pastor, Scott, Pastor Scott Mason, was preaching. He's the guy with the British accent I mentioned. Um, he didn't know that I'd go back and watch his sermon, and so he told you that you should refer to him as the real Pastor Scott. <laughs> Little message for you, Pastor Scott Mason. No matter how many times you preach here, I will always preach after you, FYI. And so I'd like to give you some other ideas other than the real Pastor Scott for things that you could call him. You could call him Pastor Scott II. That would be one option. I don't mind if you can just call him number two. I don't mind. But I would, here's my favorite one that I've come up with. Why don't you call him Little Scott? But, but, but be respectful, be respectful. Pastor Little Scott. Why don't you go with that? Be respectful, sir. That's what you get, Pastor Scott. You started this. But he was preaching John chapter 4 at the beginning. John chapter 4 at the beginning, one of the most powerful encounters you'll read in all of Scripture. There's this woman at the well. She's a sinful woman. She goes in the middle of the day because she wants to avoid everybody. She's got all kinds of shame, all kinds of guilt in her life. She encounters Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ deals with our shame, deals with our guilt. Amen? She wants to have a theological discussion with Jesus. A lot of times we do that. It's a smoke screen. We don't want to get to our hearts. Not always. A lot of times. But Jesus tells this woman, you've married, been married to five men, been divorced five times, you're shacking up with a guy who's not your husband, tells everything she ever did. She leaves her water jar, which is the thing she came, I love, I love that she leaves the water jar. She leaves the water jar because it's the thing that she came to get satisfaction with. She finds Jesus, he is the living water, and she runs back to the town. She says, I met a man who told me everything I ever did. I tell you what, there are six dudes in that town that are going, who's this guy? <laughs> okay, you get it, you get it. The first service is a little slow on that one. And they all come rushing out. Jesus is there with the other disciples. And you know what Jesus says to the other disciples? Look, behold, the harvest. There's people coming towards him. But he's an agrarian culture. He uses farmer language. He says, the harvest is plentiful. Do you know what I was, one of the things I was convicted of when I was in Madagascar? Losing missionary eyes for the city of Raleigh-Durham. Because when I moved here to plant a church, it was like, I didn't have friends. Like, I didn't know people. I just knew there were people that were lost, people that were seeped in religion. Do you know what comes right before John chapter 4? A religious guy comes to Jesus. His name's Nicodemus. Isn't that amazing? There are people seeped in religion but didn't know Jesus. There's people that thought they were too sinful to know Jesus. And so I had these missionary eyes. And then while I was there, I started seeing these people with, my, with these missionaries from our church. And, and I'm like, I need these eyes to see people in our city. And I ask you, do you have the eyes like Jesus when you look at the people of Raleigh-Durham? When you go to Harris Teeter, when you go to maybe Publix in the future, sorry, Harris Teeter, when you do your routines, when you go to work, and when you see your neighbors, and you're out at the mailbox, and, or is it just like you get in these ruts? Isn't it easy to get in these ruts, get in these routines? And He says, look, the harvest, the harvest is out there. Harvest is plentiful. And then a bunch of people come to Jesus in Samaria, but we don't have any records of him doing any miracles. 
then things are different when he comes to his hometown in Galilee. And that's where we join it, and we see why we should share the gospel, at least three reasons from this passage of Scripture. Look at it. Verse 43, after two days, he departed for Galilee, leaving Samaria, coming into Galilee. And then verse 44 is interesting. He says, for Jesus himself, it's John putting this in parentheses. He's explaining something to us that we might not just get. And so he's giving us some information here. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Okay, we've heard that before. Maybe it's because of familiarity. There's lots of reasons why. Hey, aren't you the carpenter's son? But then verse 45 seems weird. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, I thought he got no honor. What do you mean they welcomed him? We're going to see. It's a false welcome. And here's the scary part. There's a lot of people that think they've received Jesus, but all they want is his miracles. All they want is heaven. All they want is what he can do for them. And that was the problem in Galilee. And that's why it says there's a prophet without honor in his hometown. All they want to believe in are the signs. Nothing wrong with seeking a sign. Nothing wrong with looking for a miracle. But a sign points you to the person of Jesus Christ. They didn't want his message. They didn't want his mission. They didn't want his person. They just wanted his miracles. It's a false welcome. They welcomed him. Having seen, there's a clue, you can underline seen, all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana. You can underline that or circle that if you write in your Bible. That's significant. We'll get back to it at the end of this passage. To Cana in Galilee. What's, why is that significant? Where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official. Capernaum's about 15 to 20 miles away. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard, not seen, heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. And all his household, that means he shared with them. This was now the second sign. So we tie back to what was said in verse 46, the sign in Cana. This now was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And so now you've got this repeated a couple times here. I've told you before, when you see something repeated in the Scripture, it's being emphasized. Why, why is it that this miracle keeps being connected back to another miracle in Cana? If you don't know that miracle, you can read it in John chapter 2. What happens in John chapter 2? There's this big, fat Jewish wedding. It's like a throwdown wedding. Said yes to the dress, the cake is off the hinges, whatever the shows are, okay? <laughs> the wedding's going awesome, but they run out of wine. And there's a miracle that takes place there. That miracle has something in common with this miracle. What is it? It's not just that they're both in the book of John. It's not even both. They just take place from the place of Cana. So what is it? Well, if you read that miracle, what you end up seeing is that there's, you know, there's no wine. They run out of wine. Jesus' mom comes back, talks to him. There's a unique encounter. Lots of jokes can be made about that encounter. But what ends up happening is she says, hey, do whatever he says. <laughs> That's always a good idea, by the way. Do whatever Jesus says. And what Jesus does, sorry, Baptist, he turns the water into wine. Real wine, like the guy says that the, the, the judge of all the, the wine tasting guy that does this stuff, he says, this is the best stuff, the fine wine. So it wasn't like old stale grape juice that they forgot from communion. It was like good stuff. And the party continues, and many people are blessed and have no idea that Jesus did a miracle. Who knows? And there's a truism, both in this miracle, we just read about this miracle, the Father doesn't even see this miracle. He sees the results of the miracle, but there's only certain people that see the miracle. It's the servants. Do you know who sees the miracle in John chapter 2? The ones that were serving in the kitchen. See, when you're serving Jesus, you've got a front row seat to what God does. Oftentimes, many of us benefit, but it's those that are on the front lines that get a unique perspective on what Jesus is doing. This, here's what they have in common. Both miracles, you could call them private. Really, they're like semi-private miracles because there are people that know. And we know that they deemed what happened worthy to be shared because what does it say about this guy? Go back in your passage in verse 47. And when this man heard, heard. So they heard about Jesus. People were talking about Jesus because they deemed Jesus worthy to be shared. So the first point, that takes us to our first point. Our first point is this, that we should share Jesus. You want to know why you should share Jesus? We should share Jesus because Jesus is worthy to be shared because 
And this next part is important because they miss this part because of who he is, not just what he does. Jesus is worthy to be shared because of his person, because of who he is, not just because of the miracles that he does. So you think about anything that you share, you deem worthy to be shared. And so I thought it'd be fun if I pulled up a couple of your social media accounts and we look at things that you share. But I left my phone back in the green room, so sorry about that. Well, just imagine. I could look at Cody's website and see Facebook. What has he been sharing lately? I could look at, I won't pull on new people, uh, <laughs> my wife's website and see what's shared. Here's what you would find that's worthy of being shared if you want to know social media. Nobody talks about brushing their teeth. Anybody here ever br- brush your teeth on social media? Please don't tell us. You know why? Because it's so mundane. And ain't nobody want to see that. But there's not, we don't want to talk about it. Unless all your friends tell you you need to brush your teeth, you're probably not sharing that you brush your teeth. If all your friends are telling you to brush your teeth, please go brush your teeth. But no one's talking about brushing their teeth. You're bothered that I'm talking about brushing teeth. Because that's one of thousands of things you do every day. But what's worthy? Well, when you eat a good meal, that's worthy. Trust me, go through social media and find it. Good food gets on social media. You've got cute kids, that's going on social media. Your pet does something really stupid, that's going on social media. Let me tell you what's dynamite. If your kid is eating an amazing meal that you made and your pet does something stupid, viral, boom. That's like social media gold. And so you're sharing that. What about Jesus? We decide what's worthy to be shared. And Jesus is worthy to be shared because of who he is, not just because of what he's done. And this man had heard about Jesus. So someone shared this with him. Now, who's this guy? You've got to think about this scene here that happens in this passage of Scripture. It says that he's an official here. Some of your translations say he's a royal official. He's probably part of the court of Herod Antipas. If you don't know who Herod Antipas is, let me just tell you just a basic thing for you to know in the Bible. The Herods don't like Jesus. Jesus doesn't like the Herods. You see, the first Herod we see in the New Testament is Herod the Great. He's in Matthew chapter 2. He's like the first amazing picture of hypocrisy you're going to see. He tells the wise men, tell us where Jesus is so we can go worship him too. <laughs> he wants to kill Jesus. And what happens in Matthew chapter 2 is he kills all the boys that are two and under in Bethlehem because he's trying to kill Jesus because Jesus threatens his kingdom. He loves comfort more than he wants a savior, more than he wants the Christ. And Antipas isn't much better. He cuts John the Baptist's head off. You can read about that later in the Gospel of John. He ends up taking for a wife, his, his brother's wife. Like he, He's a mess. His life is a mess. Jesus calls him a fox. And so this guy works for that guy. For him to come to Jesus is a risk. It's not a natural thing. He's probably not very religious. He's probably a Gentile. What we've seen here is that Jesus comes for the Jews, Nicodemus. He comes for the Samaritans, the woman at the well. And he comes for the Gentiles. Amen, because that's what I am. And here's this guy. He's a man of means. He's got money. He's probably tried a lot of things, brought in the best doctors. Have you ever had a loved one in the hospital before? And you go to the hospital and you're walking up and down those white halls and you hear other people get bad news and they've got that hopeless cry and then you see your loved one and they're not doing well. They may be worse than they've ever been doing before and you watch the color leave their face. The doctor tells you bad news. That guy's been through this. Because he's got servants. We see that later in the passage. Why doesn't he send servants to go to Jesus and bring Jesus back? How desperate do you have to be to leave the side of your child while you know your child's dying and walk eight hours to go find Jesus. And so picture the scene here. It couldn't be more vivid what John has painted here as Jesus, a carpenter's son, is coming into this town and people are just pressing in. Everybody's heard, they've all heard about him. They've seen the miracles that he did in Jerusalem. They've heard all these things about him. So everybody who's got an ailment, everybody who's got a problem, it doesn't, you see throughout the Bible. If it's a relational problem, tell my brother to split the inheritance. If it's an illness, we got this kid, this kid needs help, got leprosy, like all kinds of stuff trying to get to Jesus. I had a better picture of it when we went to the villages of Madagascar. My wife was doing medical stuff, and so she comes in with this, you know, this baby doll thing that looked for CPR, and all the kids are like, oh, baby doll. And it's like, no, we're going to teach her how to live. And, and then they realize it's medical stuff. People start flocking around, and they're all bringing their ailments to her, and they're pressing in. And there was one moment where this guy that was the leader of the village was going to take myself and J.D. Henserling, who's one of the elders at our church, around their kind of tour around while Shannon was teaching all this medical stuff. But he had an ailment. So guess what happened? He's the leader. He cut right to the front of the line. That's not a picture of biblical leadership. But anyway, you know what happens is that Jesus got all these people pressing in on him and this royal official shows up. It's like the parting of the Red Sea. They all get out of the way. Like if some guy comes walking in the back door and he's a famous politician, you could love him or hate him. You know who he is. 
And this guy comes in working for Herod Antipas, and the Jesus is there. All these people are pressing around him, but they get out of the way, and this guy comes, and the picture we have here when it says he asked Jesus was not, hmm, Jesus, I have a question. Jesus, <laughs> where should we worship? No, it's not like that. What he's, what he's doing is he's falling down on his face, and he's begging. In fact, the Greek tense for this that he asked is in the, the imperfect tense. That means he's asking over and over again. He's not going to stop until Jesus responds. He's probably weeping. He's begging, my son's about to die. He uses a term for his boy. It's not my, you know, the third son. It's my baby boy. He's dying. Help me. And if you don't remember what the passage says, we read it together already, but you don't remember, what do you think Jesus does next? Pause, don't answer, just pause. Think in your mind. From what you know about Jesus, let me tell you something. If I responded to someone who is desperate like this, as your pastor or one of our pastors on our staff responded this way, I promise you, 99% of you would go, that's not Christ-like. Here's why. Because we've got this overly sentimentalized view of Jesus. What Jesus does next, he confronts this man and all the people. Let me read it to you so you, you know that I'm not making this up. Most of us would think he'd be like, oh, come on, come on, friend. Let's just walk eight hours together back to your son. Tell me all about it. Cry on my shoulder. Look what Jesus says. Unless you, and that's plural, by the way, unless all y'all, not just this guy that's at his knees, see signs and wonders you will not believe. What he's doing here is the most loving thing he could possibly do, but it's not what most of us think of for loving. What he's doing here is confronting their problem. The problem is they've got a faulty faith. They think they've received Jesus because they're excited about the entertainment that he brings to their lives, that he fixes their problems. They think he's Hugh Jackman, the greatest showman. Ladies and gents, they think he's going to start flipping his hat around, right? Come put on a show for us, Jesus. Jesus will not be reduced to your entertainment. And he's not here just to make you have the best life you can have now. He cares about way bigger things than that. And so he's confronting their lack of faith. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't. Now, there's nothing wrong with seeing a sign. There's nothing wrong. In fact, read the purpose statement of this whole book, John chapter 20, verse 30. There's many other signs I could have told you about, but I told you about these ones so that you would believe. The problem is they're stuck on the signs and the wonders, and they haven't moved to the person of Jesus Christ. So let's say you go to the Grand Canyon, or you go to the ocean, and you see a sign, and the sign says, ocean, two miles that way. And you're like, what an amazing sign. And you never make it to the ocean. You're a fool, first of all. The Bible calls people fools, so I think it's okay. Second, you missed all the good stuff. You missed the good stuff. And what Jesus is saying here is this. You people are interested in me using me as a means to an end, but you don't want me. So let me ask you this question. You can answer it in your mind again. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Would you be cool with getting to heaven if Jesus wasn't there? But there's no crying, and there's no pain, and there's streets of gold, and, and, and all your sins are gone, but Jesus isn't there. It's a lot of cool stuff, but no Jesus. You good with that? Because if you answer yes to that, you may answer yes to like, questions like, you ever used, you don't really care about Jesus and all that discipleship stuff. You just want like, a purpose for your life. And so instead of using miracles, you're using the mission, by the way. You can do it with all the stuff that Jesus gives. I just need a purpose, and Jesus is the only one that can give me a purpose in life, so I'm going to go to Jesus. I've got to kind of deal with all that, like deny yourself, take up, I don't know how to bottle that stuff, but I just kind of want a purpose for my life. You want Jesus just to answer a prayer in your life? You say, I just need somebody to fix this. No one else can deal with my sins, so I'm gonna, I, just, I don't really like Jesus, but he does deal with our sins, so I'm good with that, so we're just going to talk about that part of Jesus. You're using Jesus as a means to an end. You may, one of the reasons why many people never share their faith is because they have a false faith. You might be able to tell about a prayer that's been answered. You might be able to tell about some Bible story you read about, but is, is he your personal Savior? You have a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ? That's what Jesus is doing here is he's confronting. You're using me as a means to an end, and Jesus does this. It's the best thing he can do for this man, for all y'all, for these people, and he knows about himself that he's worthy to be shared because of who he is, not just because of what he does. You think about it. I think about going on those missionary roads with our missionaries and my respect level for them went up like a thousand percent. Jesus Christ is the ultimate missionary. He left heaven, came to earth for you. He's the Lamb of, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If that's all he ever did, he'd be worthy of us sharing him. Much less answering a prayer. He's the, he is, think about who he is in the Bible, not just what he does. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the one that's going to come back for us riding on a horse. 
He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He is the one that's being sung about. Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power. So you want to know why we should share Jesus? This first answer is enough. He's worthy to be shared. But it gets more personal than that. There's even more reasons. Keep reading the passage. I'll tell you the second one. The way that I phrase it is this, is that Jesus has, he has the ability and he will meet us at our greatest problem. He will meet us at our greatest problem, the point of our greatest problem. And let me ask you this, just as we study this passage together, what's this man's greatest problem? You're scared to answer because you know the obvious one's not it, right? What's his greatest problem here? You can say this, his son, his child's going to die. That's his greatest pain. That's not his greatest problem. They're not always the same thing. Sometimes they are. But your greatest pain and your greatest problem aren't always the same thing. But let me tell you something about them. God will use your greatest pain to get to your greatest problem. This man's greatest pain is his son. His greatest problem is a faith problem. You could argue about what level of faith he has. At the beginning, he's got some level of faith because he believes that Jesus can heal his son. That's good. It's what uh, one Bible commentator, Bible teacher, Warren Wearsby, he calls it a crisis faith. And he walks through this passage of scripture, Warren Wearsby does, he outlines, he says there's a crisis faith, then there's a confident faith, then there's a confirmed faith, then there's a contagious faith. I read another guy, his name's John MacArthur. John MacArthur, he talks about it from more of the negative perspective on faith. Maybe John MacArthur was having a bad day the day he studied this passage, I don't know, but he says it's unbelief. There's a battle of unbelief, and he confronts it, and then he deals with it, he conquers unbelief. And I thought, I was looking at it, and I was like, well, the outline I'm going to give these people, I don't have like catchy C words to give them about all the faith. Here's what I know about his faith. He's got a problem in his faith. And not only does he have crisis faith to start, but there's a crisis of faith here because he doesn't even realize the problem in his faith. All he knows is his pain. Some of you are going through times of pain right now. That might not be your biggest problem. Some of you have got pain in your marriage. If I just get this marriage fixed, maybe your greatest problem isn't the, the pain in your marriage. Maybe God's going to use the pain in your marriage to get your greatest problem. Maybe your greatest problem is sin in your life that's hindering your fellowship with God that then overflows into all your relationships, not just your marriage. But he's showing you through your marriage. Maybe, maybe your greatest pain in your life is that you're single, and it's your singleness. You think, if I could just guess, find somebody, I could find the right person, Mr. or Mrs. Wright, or whatever the story is in it, and your greatest pain is that, but maybe God's using that to diagnose your greatest problem might be you're finding your identity in that relationship, not in your relationship with Jesus Christ and who he's made you. Maybe, maybe your greatest pain is that you lost your job and you think, if I just could get another job, if I could just get in the right spot, if I could just find my sweet spot in life, then everything would just kind of flow and everything would be going. And, and, and your greatest problem, maybe your greatest problem is, is a faith problem like this guy. I hope that your greatest pain is not like his, that you're losing a loved one, especially a child. Maybe it is. And Jesus cares about this man so much. And just trying to fix his life here and now. He cares about the after. He cares about things that are far bigger than just here and now. This place, this place is just temporary, just so you know all of it, everything we see. And Jesus has got a plan for your heart. He cares about what's going on in your heart. And maybe God's using your pain right now to get to your problem. And here it is for this man. The pain is his son, and so you see how he responds. Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And look at the next verse. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't say, i got a better faith than that. I want you as a person. He just says, out of maybe desperation, sir, come down before my child dies. Here's what I know. i got a kid. I love my kid. He's going to die, and I think you can help. But what we see here is, is a problem in his faith just by looking at this one verse, you can see it. Do you see it? Let me read it to you again. Sir, come, and you might underline the word come, down before, you might underline the word before if you write in your Bible, before my child dies. And so what you see here is this man, he's put limits on Jesus. Sir, come, I think you've got to be physically present in order for this healing to take place. Jesus doesn't have to be, if you don't put limits on God's spatiality that he has to be in a certain spot in order to do something physically present in that spot, then let me tell you something. You have no problem believing that God can do what he did in Madagascar here in Raleigh, North Carolina. It, he says not only that, but you've got to do it before he dies. You've got to put his time restraint on him. You've got to do it, but you've got to, and so you and I can read, you know, your Bible. Some of you know your Bibles. You've been reading your Bible, and so you're like, well, Jesus himself raises from the dead. Raises Lazarus from the dead, raises Jerry's daughter from the dead. Doesn't this guy know that Jesus can raise people from the dead? Nope, he doesn't know that. But he could read the Old Testament, see that God raised people from the dead there. 
Even Abraham, who had never seen it, believed that, and he had that, that kind of faith. And, and it's easy for us to say that, sitting in church. What about when you're living it? This man's in the middle of it. The pain is squeezing in on him. He's seen the color leave his son's face. He knows his son's in a coma. He doesn't even know if his son's still alive when he's saying these words. He's walked eight hours to get to Jesus. So did you just come? But the problem is he's got such limited faith, and Jesus is going to deal with that. That's a problem for some of us is our limited faith. You put God in a box. Now, I hear that say, sometimes you hear that like even on the news or like people who don't even know Jesus will be like, you put God in a box. You know what they're saying? Let's just let God be whoever we want him to be. Let me tell you something. If your box is the Bible, that's a great box to have for, for God. Because that's God's guardrails for it. He's showing us. Here's how I'm revealing myself, my revelation of myself. You want to know how I work and who I am? Here it is. But oftentimes what we use as our box is our experiences. Here's the problem I bet for a bunch of people in this room is that, that your box you say is the Bible and you believe a bunch of stuff in the Bible, but when, when life presses in on you and you've got pain, <laughs> then, then you kind of modify stuff. And so our problem is we got a big box. And so I brought a little visual demonstration for us today. I had thought about asking somebody to come get in it. Don't worry, we're not going to do that this time. But this is a big box. This represents people who will be like, I believe that Jesus, that God parted the Red Sea. I believe that Jesus walked on water. I believe that Jesus fed 5,000 people. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But do you believe that Jesus loves you? Well, I believe he loved that woman in John chapter 8. She was caught in adultery. But does he love you? You see, a lot of times we believe a bunch of stuff. What about in our lives? I, I believe, you believe that fish story? Don't raise your hand. They might put you in the news and observer. You do. You really believe it. Do you believe he can do anything he wants in your life? Do you believe there's nothing my God cannot do? We say in our theological box, we, we, in our theological thing, yep, he can do that. We believe, let me tell you something. If you believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, why would you have any trouble with him like multiplying a couple fish for a few thousand people? Like think about that for a second. And if you don't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you're not a Christian. And so if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then all the other miracles are irrelevant, and you're not a Christian. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, every other miracle should be nothing. Walking on water. There, sometimes I read Bible scholars that will write, like, they'll believe that Jesus rose from the dead, forgave our sins, and then they'll write, like, the Bible story and explain that there must have been a sandbar next to the boat that Jesus was walking on. I'm like, really? Like, really? Why is that a problem? Defying the law, you know, just gravity. Why is that? How is that a problem? He defeated death, people. But we, sometimes we believe that Jesus defeated death and forgive us for our eternal problems, but he can't deal with our daily problems. So this marriage, it's beyond fixing. My financial problems, nope, not that. My sins, some of you, your greatest pain is a regret you have from your past. You know what your greatest problem is? You haven't received grace. Some of you, your greatest problem is that you don't know what it is to be loved by God, but you can tell everybody, for God so loved the world. Some of your greatest, your greatest problem is a faith problem. You believe that Jesus can walk on water. You believe that God part the Red Sea. You believe Jesus rose from the dead. But you don't believe he can empower you to forgive the person who wronged you. So how powerful is he? So we put limits on his love. We put limits on his forgiveness. We put limits on his power. We put limits on his grace. There's no limit to his love, just so you know. There's no limit to his power. No limit to his grace. So it might be that God's using the pain in your life to grow your faith in your life because you had a faith problem. And you see it all through the Bible. Read Hebrews chapter 11. We don't have time to go through all of it, but in Hebrews chapter 11, it's called oftentimes the hall of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us what faith is. It says without faith, it's impossible to please God. That faith is evidence of things hoped for, and you've got a conviction for things you've never seen. Never seen? What? That sounds familiar to this passage. Remember in Samaria, all they had done is heard. Here they're saying, we just want to see signs. Nothing wrong with seeing a sign. Nothing wrong with getting confirmation of your faith. But if all you have is that, and your faith is in that, and not in the person of Jesus Christ, faulty faith. The sign should point us to Jesus. What happens in Hebrews chapter 11, look at every person, I challenge you to go back and read it, every character, and then go look at their Old Testament story and see how God used pain in their life to grow their faith. Abraham, Sarah, 25 years of infertility. Why? There's nothing for God to make them pregnant. He promised them they'd have a baby. Let me tell you something about God. God's always working for your good. He's rarely doing it your way. Amen? Amen? 
There's a verse of scripture you can tell people when they're going through pain and it seems trite to them but they need to know it. It's the sovereignty of God is what it's telling us that God works all things together for good for those who love him or are called according to his purposes. God's always working for your good. We know that for sure. The Bible tells us that. But from experience we can say rarely do we see him do it in our way. So Abraham and, I, Abraham and Sarah, when they were waiting for Isaac, they didn't want it that way. David, do you think David, after he was promised to be king, wanted to run from Saul as long as he did? What's God doing in that? Moses, Moses lives half of his life, or percentage, about a third of his life, thinking, I just, my life is wasted opportunity. That's what my life is about. Do you not serve the God of second chances? Maybe he's preparing you for something else, different than what you thought, but God's plan for your good and his glory. You can go through all those Bible characters and see their story and you see pain. I love what I brought a quote by a guy named John Bloom. He wrote a book called Things Not Seen. He says this about Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is in the Bible to remind us that God hides his most precious treasures for his saints in their most difficult and painful experiences. Some of you, you've got pain in your life. God's using it to get to your problem in your life. And let me tell you something about Jesus. One of the reasons why he's worthy of being shared is because Jesus will meet you at the point of your greatest problem and he'll use your pain to get there. Not only that, but Jesus has a plan that pleases God. That's the next thing we see, the last thing we see in this passage. Jesus, you want to know why we should share him? He has the plan for your life that pleases God. And here's something you need to know about that. Some of you wonder about God's plan for your life. God's plan for your life will always require you to take a step of faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that's what we see happen here next in this passage of Scripture in verse 15. So in verse 49, the man said, Just come before my child dies. Jesus said to him, I'll paraphrase it first, I'm not going to come, you're going to go, and your son will live. Very simply, Jesus says it very literally just like this, go, your son will live. He gives him a command, and he gives him a promise, which leads us to what is it to, to walk by faith. Let me tell you what it is to walk by faith is this, is not to just do some radical thing and throw Jesus' name on it. Every once in a while you'll meet people, and you, you'll hear their, what they're doing with their life, and you're like, wow, that's pretty radical, I wouldn't do that, that sounds just dumb like if we're being honest and you say why are you doing that living by faith no you don't have a plan that's actually what you mean that's code but in the christian jargon we're not allowed to say that to each other because once you throw a little bit of god language on something you feel guilty about confronting them in that let me tell you living by faith is not doing any radical dumb thing in the name of jesus living by faith is when we're obeying the commands of jesus and clinging to the promises of jesus what do we have here? We've got a command, go. We've got a promise, your son will live. Let me just put myself in this story for a minute. Like one of my kids, when they read the Bible, they just like, they imagine they're in the story, ever do that? If I'm this man, and, and I get told go, and one of, my, one of my daughters, i got all daughters, one of my daughters is sick, you know what I'm doing right after that? I'm texting my wife. Did she get any better? Because I can still see him. Like I'm going to go grab him in a second. I promise this guy didn't have an iPhone. Journey takes about eight hours. Do you know what the pastor says he does next? He doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't try to persuade Jesus. He doesn't say to Jesus like many of us would say, I'm just going to go pray about this, Jesus. <laughs> Let me tell you something. You never need to pray about obeying a command. If someone ever says to you, hey, let's go share the gospel with your neighbor. Oh, I just need to pray about that. Oh, you think God's going to say no? <laughs> like, what do you, you don't need to pray about that. You don't need to pray about obedience. You don't need to pray about holiness. You don't need to pray about, I don't know, maybe I should cheat on my wife. You don't need to pray about that. I should steal some money from my company. No, you don't need to pray about that. He says, go. And so what does the pastor say he did? Look at what the pastor says he did. The man has no visual external evidence. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Jesus is trying to get in the place where he'd have genuine faith. And he went on his way. That's amazing. So you think about, just start, you can go through and maybe in your own devotional life when you read your Bible on a daily basis on your own, when you see a command of scripture, where's the promise? And you start looking. Children, obey your parents. One of my kids is in this room. That's why I'm quoting this one. Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents. And it will go well with you. <laughs> Trust me, it won't go well with you if you don't. But anyway, it will go well with you. And all the parents are like, amen. Let me remind you, you got parents. <laughs> Honor them. Honor your parents. And your life will belong. There's a promise that goes with that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13. How about this one for North Raleigh? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For, here's the promise, he has said, I will never leave you. You have me. I will never leave you or forsake you. Go make disciples. Oh, that's scary. I'll be with you, and I have all authority in heaven and on earth. They might reject you. You might get your head chopped off, but I'll be there. See, there's always a promise to cling to when there's a command to obey. 
Living by faith is you're obeying the commands, clinging to the promises. You don't just make up random stuff. I think I'm going to jump off an airplane. In Jesus' name! And, you know, it's not going to go well. And so this man does. The man believed the word, but he's still wavering his faith. It doesn't mean you have it all figured out. Watch what happens next. That Jesus spoke to him. He went on his way, verse 51. As he's going down, his servants met him. So he's, you know, about four hours into this journey and told him that his son was recovering. Amazing news. What would you do if you were a parent? Look what this guy does. So he asked them, <laughs> really? So he asked them the hour. When, it, when did he, like, is this guy a total nerd? <laughs> like, come on. Like, your, son, your daughter's doing well? I'm going to be like, awesome! Like, celebrate! Well, let me look at my Fitbit. How many steps did I take? When did he get better? When did this start to happen? Like, you think about, it's such a weird question. And then it says here, yesterday, so that means that man went to bed that night without talking to his wife. All that man had was a command and a promise. That's where we live 99% of the time. And then he gets confirmation. This, was, this is what Jesus did. Look at what it says. At the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him. So that means even on his journey, after he stepped out by faith, he was still contemplating. Can I really trust this, Jesus? And some of us are like that. We trusted Jesus for our eternal destiny. We believe that he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He tells me to live like this in my marriage. He tells me to use my finances this way. He tells me to be this way with my faith. And we're kind of stepping out. And it's like, I, do I really trust him? And you're figuring it out. And he all, Jesus always keeps his promises, FYI. And here this man finds that out. He said, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, but it didn't stop there. And all his household, do you know what that means? That means he shared with his household because his household wasn't there. The mom, the kids, they were back at the house still. The son was dying. And so he had to come back and tell, hey, let me tell you about this Jesus that I met. Not only did he heal our son, he wants us to live by faith. He said it's not just enough, it's just the signs and wonders. He wants us to trust him, but he meets us at the point of our greatest problem. And he's got a plan for us, so that plan requires that we live by faith, and they all believed. Belief's a pretty big deal in the Gospel of John. We don't have time to go through all of it, but let me share some stuff with you. You can, you can go back on your own. Here's some faith in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 12, it's through faith that we become children of God. John chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, it's through faith that we obtain eternal life. John chapter 3, verse 18, it's through faith we avoid judgment. John chapter 11, verse 25, that's how we partake in the resurrection life. In John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, that's how we experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by faith. We're delivered from spiritual darkness. John chapter 12, verse 46, through faith. We find the empowerment for spiritual service. John chapter 14, verse 12, through faith. So let me ask you this. Some of us are deceived into thinking. Once you place your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, that faith thing, you got that sealed up. I mean, faith is for the future too. Do you believe he's still going to keep his promises? In your battle with sin, do you believe that his commandments, he wants what's best for you, and those promises he puts with the commandments are better than the sin that is tempting you? That's faith. Sin's always a faith issue, just so you know. Are you going to trust God, or are you going to believe a lie? Are you going to walk by? What is your next step of faith? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Some of you, your next step of faith is to trust Jesus as your Savior. You've never done that. Maybe you've gone to church. Maybe you believe stuff about Jesus, but you've never asked him to be your Savior and forgive you of your sins and turn to a relationship with him like El Faradza did. You know what El Faradza ended up telling me after he throws the book down and he starts yelling at my face and all that stuff? You know what he ended up telling me? He said, when I was a witch doctor, I could put a curse on you. <laughs> I was like, this is a spiritual throwdown. Like, what do I do? I'm looking over at the missionary. <laughs> So I could put a curse on you, and you couldn't walk any closer to me. I'm just like standing there like, what's this dude about to do? And then he says, and if somebody had a problem, I could fix their problem. He gave me an example of that. He said, you know the problem was? I couldn't help myself. Do you know what? Jesus can. Jesus fixes your greatest problem. He forgives you of your sin. God's wrath is coming against you. And Jesus took that wrath on the cross, but you've got to trust him by faith. But it doesn't stop there. He keeps calling you to take next steps of faith. There's a friend of mine. He's in this room right now. He told me I could share this. We were talking through some difficulty he had in his life this week. Lost his job. And I said, hey, don't, don't start doubting things that you do in the light just because now you're in a dark spot. So what do we know? What do we know God's doing here? I said, we know, Philippians 1.6, he's doing a work in you because he promised he began a good work in you. He's going to be faithful to complete it. So we know he's going to use this to do that work. We know he wants you to get into his word. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That comes through the scriptures. We know he wants you to keep your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Some of you are going through pain and darkness right now. 
What do you know God wants to do? Some of you are asking God, what's my next step of faith? What do you want me to do? Think about where we're at as a church. Some of you are going to have opportunities to step into leadership, step into service you've never had before, and we're going to need you. So we move over to this new campus, and new people come, and you know what's going to happen? Here's the dilemma that's going to happen. We're going to say to those people, you need to get into a small group. Well, I tried to go to this guy's small group, and it's full. And I tried to go to that guy's small group, and it's full. And I'm going to stand there as a pastor and go, I just don't know what to tell you, because our small group is full too. Some of you are going to need to lead small groups. And you're like, I don't even know if I want to share anything, much less lead a small group. It's going to be a step of faith for you. Some of you need to share your faith. And you, you knew before I started preaching this message who God wants you to share the gospel with. Maybe it's your non-believing spouse. And you've done great going to Bible study and telling everybody else to pray for them. But have you shared the gospel with them? And you need to share the gospel with them. Maybe there's pain, there's difficulty that's happened in your marriage. You need to repent together. And that's going to mean confessing sin not just to God but to one another. And that's going to require faith. Maybe you need to confess sin to someone else in this church. We confess sins to one another. That's going to require faith. Maybe you need to forgive somebody. Maybe you need to love somebody. There are all these commands we could go through in the scripture. They all require faith. What's your next step of faith? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we are so grateful that you have not left us here on our own. You've given us your word. You've given us the Holy Spirit. I pray that your Holy Spirit will convict hearts right now, anybody who needs to trust your son Jesus as Savior. And if that's you, you need to confess your sin to him. The Bible says if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's a promise. Will you cling to that promise for your salvation? You need to ask Jesus to be your Savior. You need to ask Jesus to be your Savior right now. And if you pray to receive Jesus as your Savior, I just ask you, would you mark that on your connection card so I can shoot you an email this week and just give you some ideas on ways that you can grow in your faith? And Father, I pray for those who've trusted Jesus as their Savior, but they've got another step of faith to take. You know what that is. Will you tap them on the shoulder right now? Will you speak? Will you whisper into their ear? Will you speak to their heart? Put an impression on their heart of what that is. It might be a, a sin issue. It might be a faith issue. It might be you pouring grace into their life. They need to receive that grace. It might be receiving forgiveness. It might be giving forgiveness. God, you know what's happening in every individual's life. You know the couple that's sitting next to each other that both know what has to happen next in their home Will you give one of them the courage to step out and take that first step of faith and cling to your promises? They obey your commands. Maybe a husband is going to love his wife like you love the church, giving your life for the church. God, will you, will you speak into our situations right now in this moment? And God, I pray for my friends. I pray for all the members of Southbridge. I pray for our guests that you give us the boldness to, to cast off fear and to take a courageous step of faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.